May the 21st, 2017, lecture discussion number 284 on the book of Romans and all other places that I might end up today. Bunches of passages I haven't really figured out definitively where we're going to go. And the challenge for me every Sunday is where do I start? And I got a lot of choices. As most of you folks know, I I try to cover as much material as I can. I never want anybody to leave any service or watch any service and say um, he just beat around the bush on the same thing over and over and over again. I do that somewhat, but I want to load you up with as much as I can, as often as I can. And where to start the next week is the most difficult aspect of my methodology. Occasionally I'm successful in tying all of it together. And that's a qualifier, a relative term, that occasionally. And that uh, leads me to my preoccupation, relativity, or what I like to refer to as absolute observation. I like to say that there is an absolute observer. So there is one observer who has the perfect position of observation where he sees all things. And therefore, uh, he has the correct frame of reference. And, and this, uh, this is important to me. And as you know, I, I descend easily into Isaac Newton because Isaac Newton was a mathematician and a physicist. And that is very unusual for his time especially. Newton, in my opinion, was the greatest mathematician physicist of the last 2,000 years. And even he ultimately could not reconcile gravitational realities with mathematical calculations. He looked at gravity and said, this is not able to be rendered in a natural form. In other words, he decided that gravity must be the mind of God. That's what he did. And I think he was correct. I'm very sympathetic to Newton's conclusion. Because I see the relationships between the mind of God and the consciousness of man, of me, my consciousness, and that of animals. It is logical. It is Occam's razor to me and, and um, that the source of consciousness is the one who himself, being conscious, let me say it better. The source of consciousness comes from the one who is already conscious. Does that make sense? Did I say that well? I hope I did. In other words, consciousness must come from consciousness. It doesn't evolve. It can't emerge. The source of consciousness is consciousness. Just as life must begat life. Life cannot come from any other source but other life. That is the law of biogenesis. I have Chronister's law of consciousness. It must come from consciousness. Oh my goodness. <laughs> it is a conspiracy. We, we have to turn the camera around, but we can't, we can't do that to you because here would come the police again, and that's really, <laughs> how, many, how many did you pass out? One, let me count the cans of one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven, twelve, thirty-four, fifty-six. My goodness. That's a lot of money wasted on you. I'm kidding. That's fantastic. If, where is the Coca-Cola company? The whole congregation now. Is now, because of the steroidal impact, as we know, this is really a weight training class today. Oh, that's amazing. <laughs> Are you going to 
are we all going to do this together, the whole show? It's kind of like a drinking game, isn't it? What, what, what word is it that, I'm, that triggers this response? Hmm. If it happens to be quantum mechanics, there's going to be a lot of people running for the one bathroom upstairs. That's how it's going to go. <laughs> okay, that is amazing. Whoever thought of that? Uh, oh, oh, yes, yeah, yeah. Uh, it was pretty obvious, wasn't it? <laughs> Who the saboteur was. <sighs> I'm losing control. That implies I had control. Okay, as a trained professional, where was I? Chronister's Law of Consciousness. You're not going to get consciousness from anything but consciousness. And so, consciousness must be outside of time. It's some, in the beginning, if you will, and that is the case, as you heard me say, thousands and thousands of times. And I see this as an elementary principle. I think it's basic. I think it's simple. Consciousness comes from consciousness. Life comes from life. Again, Occam's razor, the explanation that is the least, that is of the least complexity that resolves the question is the solution. But as you know, the academic atheistic community does not share my positions here. They insist that life does not come from life. Life comes from non-life. They absolutely will not accept biogenesis being absolute. They say life came from non-life and that consciousness does not exist. That is what they teach your children in school, everywhere, down to kindergarten. Consciousness does not exist and life comes from non-life. And again, you heard that correctly. And it's vitally important to know that the academic atheists are adamant. They're certain that consciousness is an illusion and that consciousness is nothing. That is what they say. And that's a fascinating recent development. It's within the last hundred years. It isn't uh, ancient. It's relativity, relativity, relative, I can't even say it. What's the word that we drink? Those of you on the internet, everyone is in unison. It's like, this is like a chorus line in here. It's a, <laughs> is this going to happen the rest of the show? Is that what we're doing? Oh, that's great. That's really great. How will I get my revenge? I have about an hour to think of it. <laughs> oh, my. I used to chew straws. Was anybody here the day on my birthday that everyone in the congregation was chewing straws? Is anybody here for that? Yeah, I had, I, I did. I had a, well, no, never mind. I have uh, lost my way now completely. <laughs> Wonder why. Again, this position that consciousness is an illusion, that your thought process, your self-awareness, you don't really have it. That is being taught today at every single level in the scholastic endeavors. So, and consciousness is nothing. There is no consciousness. Again, that's a relative recent development within the last 100 years or so. Maybe 20 is when 30 or so, when it really became forceful. Most other people, 99%, are unwilling to deny the existence of consciousness. And we call those people 
sane people. They have sanity. It is remarkable where the atheists now find themselves today. They're arguing for suppositions that are delirious, irrational. What could make somebody deny the existence of consciousness, self-awareness, thought process, love, emotion, reasoning? Who would deny the existence of those things? But that's what's happening. What could cause it? This is willful choosing of something that is on its face inexplicable. What causes that? Why would they, why do they deny consciousness? What is their motive for this? Well, now I hope you can see how this is our Genesis 2-3 discussion, isn't it? Romans 5. Let me put that on the board. What I just discussed is Genesis Two and three, Romans five and Romans one. If you want more specifics, twenty four through thirty five or so. Mathematics Mathematics Physics. Consciousness. They have a relationship. These are the three components of our reality. I hear a booming going on. Do you hear that? Is it bothersome or should we keep going? Because it's Terry's fault. We can fix it. Maybe. Note, note this. Mathematics and consciousness are independent from physics. There's a relationship here because they are not the same as physics. Mathematics and consciousness are independent of physics. Mathematics and consciousness are not physical. They are the two that aren't physical here. Our reality, again, let me repeat. I'll make the case that our reality is a mathematics, physics, and consciousness combination. Physics, if mathematics and consciousness are non-physical, then physics is the physical. That's some profound insight right there, isn't it? <laughs> Who is this guy? <laughs> I, just, I wrote it and now I'm reading it going, what, what, what is this? Huh. But here's the continual mystery, thus the continual mystery. How can the non-physical affect the physical? How can mathematics and consciousness affect the physical or physics? Because it does. Your mind affects your body. We've had this discussion hundreds of times. You can will yourself into sickness. You can will yourself into death. People do it all the time. The non-physical can affect the physical. And how does that happen? That's, again, the, the mystery, the continual enigma. And the inverse of that is, can the physical create the non-physical? 
And they cannot. So the non-physical can affect the physical, but the physical cannot create the non-physical. So the question becomes, where did consciousness and mathematics come from? Let's put it this way. Which came first, mathematics or physics? The answer is mathematics. Ask anyone in physics. The mathematics is always developed before the physics are. We have mathematics that we have found, that we have, that we have calculated, that are in place, and yet there is no physical correspondence yet. The mathematics of Einstein's theories of relativity were in place before his theory of relativity. So mathematics comes before physics. Which came first, consciousness or mathematics? This entire creation is governed by mathematical precepts. And all of it obeys those precepts. All of it. So clearly the mathematics come before the creation. But what comes before the mathematics? Obviously to me, it is consciousness. It is obvious to me that consciousness begat mathematics. And that therefore mathematics is the revelation of the original consciousness. The source of all consciousness. Mathematics is the mind of God revealed. And again, all of his creation obeys his mathematics. So all of that, what I just did, leads us to Sally. Do you remember Sally from a few weeks ago? She wrote with a question. She had she wrote me a non-digital letter a while back asking about Genesis 3 and Isaiah 65, 17 through about 25 or so. I'll put 25 just to be close. This is about 32 for those of you who follow on the internet. Okay. So that's where we're starting today after that little brief segue into uh, physics and mathematics. We're going to go to Isaiah 65, 17 through 25. Now turn to your Bibles. Now watch this. Oh, they're very quick, these people. Some people have to put their phones down to grab their sodas. Yeah. <laughs> Those people I trapped right there, didn't I? <laughs> I am, did I, I think I told you the story. Eric, uh, who is followed behind me teaching in the same school that I taught in, had a lady come in who told him that she knew a Mr. Chronister that threw erasers at the students. I actually one year threw a Coke can, not knowing it was full of soda. Somebody, I knew who it was, he shall remain nameless, Jerry Williams, had a can of soda just like this, thinking it was okay for him to have one if I had one. And it was not okay. So I just arbitrarily, by intent, appeared to be arbitrary, but it was purposeful. I had my back to him, and I just walked over, and I grabbed the can of soda off the desk and threw it at the trash can. It was full, and I had no idea. I thought it was empty. And I did it all in one motion. Whoa. And it flew through and went right in the trash can. And I quit teaching. No, actually, I continued. But it was probably the most brilliant shot of my life. Every student there thought that I could do it every time. I let them think that. <laughs> okay, here we are. 65, 
Isaiah 17 to 25. For behold, oh my goodness, let's get rid of this part. Starts out with behold. So we're going to learn an incredible truth. Here comes the incredible truth. Behold, I create new heavens and a new earth. That's extraordinary. That's information that demands me screaming the word behold. And the former shall not be remembered or come to mind, but be glad and rejoice forever in what I create. And what does he create? God is creating again. This is not Genesis 1. This is Isaiah 65. And be glad and rejoice forever in what I create. For behold, here it comes again. He's creating another time. How many times does he create becomes the question. And he's going to do it. But there's another behold here. Second behold. I create Jerusalem. So obviously... Learn to spell. He creates Jerusalem. I thought Jerusalem has already been created. This is not the same Jerusalem. This is a different Jerusalem. Kind of, sort of. We'll get to that in a minute. I, I create Jerusalem as a rejoicing and her people a joy. I will rejoice in Jerusalem, which implies what? Heretofore, he hasn't been doing a lot of rejoicing in Jerusalem. So we're entering a new time of Jerusalem, aren't we? The voice of weeping shall no longer be heard in her, nor the voice of crying. When is this going to happen? No more shall an infant there live but a few days, nor an old man who has not fulfilled his days. For the child shall die 100 years old. What? Is this? This is Sally's question. Hi, Sally. The child shall die 100 years old, but the sinner being 100 years old shall be accursed. They shall build houses and inhabit them. They shall plant vineyards and eat their fruit. They shall not build and another inhabit. They shall not plant and another eat. In other words, when the Jews are in this particular phase of their, of their relationship to the Creator God, no one's going to destroy them again. They will not build something that someone else will take. They will not plant something that someone else will eat. For as the days of a tree, so shall the days of my people, and my elect shall long enjoy the works of their hands. What, how long is a tree? They shall not labor in vain, nor bring forth children for trouble. The word literally means sudden death. They will not bring forth children to sudden death. For they shall be the descendants of the blessed of the Lord. And their offspring with them. It shall come to pass that before they call, I will answer. And while they are still speaking, I will hear. The wolf and the lamb shall feed together. The lion shall eat straw like the ox. What will that require biologically? Eating straw. What will happen? Again, this is a creative event. A creative situation. 
The lion will eat like the eat straw like the ox, and dust shall be the serpent's food. Whoa, baby. That should the alarm bell should have gone off for you right there, huh? They shall not hurt nor destroy in all my holy mountain, says the Lord. So there is a holy mountain here, and it's his. So, what is being talked about here? God will create a new heavens and a new earth. This is the behold. I will create a new heaven and a new earth. It's an announcement of a creation event. That means it returns us to Genesis 1. Here's the timeline that I should probably do. Let's get rid of this part. I'll put a timeline for you. Here's Genesis 1. One, two, three, four, five. When is this? When is Isaiah 65:17? Where do you put it? Do you put it here? Do you put it here? Those are really your choices, aren't they? What is this little piece here? This little gap. That's right. That's a 75-day interval. Okay. Is this Isaiah 65:17 describing the eternal order of Revelation 21 and? And 22, because this is Revelation 21 and 22. Is that what it's describing? Some will say yes, but the contextual evidence says no. Isaiah is describing the messianic kingdom. That would be here. The 1,000 years here. So, in and again, I'll say to you that that's my opinion. I'll defend it next week, or well, I won't do it next week, but the week after that when we return. But Isaiah is describing the Messianic kingdom with the Messiah, that's Jesus Christ, who is God himself, who is now in his kingship phase. Christ has three offices. He first came as a prophet, and then he is now in the high priest, and he will then come as king right here. Actually, he comes right there. So there is a period of time between he, he taking him, his taking the throne uh, and his return. Christ is, of course, God. He's the I Am of Israel. He has returned to his creation, and his his, his intention is to rule the earth for one thousand years. And this is what Isaiah is referencing here. Satan is going to be bound during this period. So let's put that somewhere over here. Satan bound in the abyss or the bottomless pit. One thousand years. So while Christ is on earth for a thousand years, Satan is in the bottomless pit, the abyss, for uh, one thousand years. As an aside, 
the view that holds the Antichrist has two advents uh, is into play here. In other words, when I say two advents, the Antichrist will also come twice. Just as the Christ comes twice, the Antichrist will come twice. And that, that position says that uh, there is a first coming and a second of return of the Antichrist. And this position has the Antichrist in the abyss. So the Antichrist was first here before Satan. The question becomes is when did he go there and when did he come out? Because he's not there now. The position that has the Antichrist in his the abyss is the uh, Acts one twenty five, Revelation thirteen one, John seventeen twelve, John seventeen fifteen, Second Thessalonians two three and two eleven position. For those of you on the internet, let me repeat it. Acts one twenty five, Revelation thirteen one, John seventeen twelve, John seventeen fifteen, Second Thessalonians two three and two eleven has the that's the two advent view of the Antichrist that has him in the bottomless pit and coming out of the bottomless pit in Revelation 13.1 for his return. Okay, That's the aside. I'll get questions on that. I always do. Isaiah 65.17 is describing the kingdom age of the Messiah. Here. Not the eternal order or the restoration of all things which comes after the kingdom age. And that... That's what Isaiah is doing. And that means that it is not a new heaven and a new earth as it is commonly translated. What it means is that it is a creative renewal of the earth, not a new earth. The Revelation 21-22 verses describe something completely on a much larger scale that is completely new, to use a, a phrase that may not be totally accurate. Having said that, nonetheless... Isaiah 65:17 tells us that God will create again at the beginning of his millennium. So right here, I had creation here. In Genesis 1, I have creation here. This creation far more significant than this. The other questions become what? Where else do we have creation? Do we have creation at the fall? Do we have creation at the flood? Where else is there creation? We're going to change a lion into the stomach system of of cattle. When did we change it into a predator? Or did we change it into a predator? And when I say we, I'm being general, obviously. We did not. But when did God, what, where are these creative events? Where do you put the creation of the angelic host? Before Genesis 1? To the left of Genesis 1? This way. You pointed like this, and I went like this. So where is so? Do I have creation event here too? Once a yeps. <laughs> you folks are on point here. I'm a, I am really impressed. This is a this is now competitive. And I'm losing badly. I, I'm, I, I'll come up with a solution. Now this will cost me money from Coca-Cola, so I, I really I have to I have to weigh that. Not that I have had any money given to me by Coca-Cola, but I'm hoping whoever thought of this is clearly on the same page as me. 
Okay. Isaiah tells us that God will create at the beginning of the millennium. He's going to change things there. So there will, but by doing this, there will also still remain vestiges of that which was proceeding. And that is a fundamental understanding that you must have. What I mean by that is that God has this pattern. He always, he always does it this way. When he's transitioning from one age or one era to the next age or era, he takes some of the old and he moves it in with the new. And it changes it slightly. There's a blending, if you will. Some things continue on, though they're adjusted and they're modified. Again, sometimes it's only very slight. Sometimes it's significant. Sometimes it's considerable. But there's always something of the previous age included in the following or the subsequent age. Understand that. And that's what's happening here. I have a I have a new earth, but it ha- remains somewhat similar to the one that was left behind. I have a Jerusalem. It's got some similarities. Here I have a completely different situation, but I still have some of the old here as well. There always is this recognizable element. And what happens immediately here is that he raises Jerusalem geographically. So there's this amazing mountain here. The holy mountain of God is now in Jerusalem. I'll make the case that uh, is the only mountain on earth. There's just one. He leveled all the rest of them in the tribulation. One mountain. Everyone always tells me how beautiful the mountains are. Oh, aren't the mountains beautiful in Alaska? No. They're cold. They're jagged. They're ugly. And he's getting rid of them. Don't get attached. The worst thing you can be is a mountaineer in the restoration of all things. Don't need you. Same thing for pilots, by the way. Oh, got all the way to there. You know, once is always in this business. What you've done now is you've committed yourself to every Sunday to doing this, because this is so funny. Do you know if we actually had a real visitor, because Sue doesn't qualify? Uh, <laughs> hi, Sue. Hi, Gary. Uh, <coughs> excuse me. Ah, I lost my voice there for saying. But if we ever had a real visitor and they saw this go on, <laughs> just but that's normal. That's what we do anyway. I mean, it really isn't a big deal. I'm thinking about where we can take this as I'm running out of time. I could eat Kentucky Fried Chicken. So could you. <laughs> this is almost like Simon Says. Okay. Worst sermon ever. Here we go. Point is, is that there is this creative change. And geographically, that is the most common example of it. But the Mosaic Law also, when he ended the law, he still brought the law forward. You have to, as a theologian, as a scholar of the Bible, understand the change that is in the law. The age of Christ and the age of Moses are not the same, but they ha- the age of Christ has inside of it the law of Moses. The same thing will happen here. If we study Ezekiel again, and we did it 20 years ago, we'll learn that the sacrificial system continues into the millennium. Why? How does it work? Why does he have animal sacrifice? What happens to the animal in the presence of God? Can you kill anything in the presence of God? 
It becomes, there's a lots of really interesting questions, but Ezekiel makes it clear that there is, there's pre-sacrificing animals in the millennium. What's the purpose? God is there. Christ has, is on the throne. Everything has been completed. Why do we have this memorial system? Because that's what it is. It's not accomplishing anything. It never saved anybody. All it did is restore fellowship to the Israel. You are saved by faith through grace, whether or not you are in the Old Testament or the New Testament. It's the only way you can be saved. But why is it in? Why does he include some sort of sacrifice that is not the same as it was prior to Christ? Why does he include it in the millennium? And how is it different? Clearly it is different because he is there physically. So those are, those are just something I want you to understand, that this transference, if you will, or this transmission of something of the old, slightly changed and different into the new age. More on that later. For today, Sally wanted to know about this. No more shall an infant from there live but a few days. In other words, there will be no infant mortality. Infants will not die in the Messianic kingdom. They will not die. Children won't die as we define children. There will not be a single child death in the Messiah's kingdom age. Ask the obvious question. Why not? What happens to children that die now? Every one of them are saved. Why? Don't write me and argue with me. You'll lose. Why? That is how God has designed it. No more shall an infant from there live but a few days. Infants will not die in the Messianic kingdom. What does this have to do with the two trees of Genesis 3? Because there we are, the Genesis 3, actually Genesis 2, huh? 2.17, 16 and 17. Two trees. This is very much a two-tree Genesis 2, 16, and 17, discussion. Not only will infants not die, but in fact, everyone who is born will live at minimum 100 years. And I want you to continue to say, what's going on? Why are these things this way? If you wish, consider the destiny of all infants who have died in the previous ages. All of them, every single one, are saved eternally. Everyone, no exceptions. All children who die as children are saved by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. But in the Messianic era, the kingdom age, this changes. This changes to none die in childhood. And childhood is redefined to mean what? A hundred years old. A child is a hundred years old. Why is a child a hundred years old? Why are hundred-year-olds called children in the Messianic age? That is how God defines them. The definition of child is different, but they're still children. Does that make sense? Follow that same pattern. God himself, I keep asking, why is this so? God himself is on the, his earthly Jerusalem throne on his holy mountain. That's the underlying reason, but there's more to it than this. Also, why is this very defined specific age? In other words, why a hundred years old? You can go through all the numerology books and all of the Bibles, the scholars, uh, Bullinger, pick one, all of the guys. They will never define what a hundred years means. 
They'll give you 120. They'll give you 153. They will not give you 100. So why 100? Why not 30? Why not 50? Why not 70? What is this 100 years? What is the meaning of the 100 years? Well, it is two 50-year periods, isn't it? Two periods of 50. What's 50 in the Bible? It's a jubilee. I have two jubilees. Two 50-year jubilee periods. And what is jubilee personified by? What is, the, what is the personification, if you will, of a jubilee? It's a period of freedom. A jubilee is the embodiment of freedom. It's liberty. Slaves are freed. Land is returned. Freedom is what 50 means. I have two of those. Two is the essence of what? Yes, it's the essence of witness or testifying, testimonial, evidentiary aspects. So notice that those who die at a hundred are have two fifty-year periods of freedom and two, and this testifying of each period. And this this verse that follows all of this, but the sinner being 100 years old, shall be accursed. Now, that's an interesting question. The child is 100 years old. So what is he at 101? Is he still a child? Is he a child at 99, 364? And then at 100, he stops being called a child? But there's a sinner that is uh, 99, 364, and if he ends up being a sinner at 99.365, then he's accursed. Those who die at 100 are sinners and accursed. And that causes immediate questions. Is, is this a general term, the sinning? Or is it a specific sin? When God says someone is accursed, that is never good news. When you are cursed by God, what does that mean? That means his definition of cursed is extensive. It is infinite. So what has this 100-year-old child sinner done to become accursed, as opposed to the child who is not a sinner? I have two children. One's, they're both 360, I'm sorry, they're both 99, 365, 99 years, 365 days, 364. Ah. Two children, both of them on the precipice, on the cliff side of their hundredth day, hundredth year. One of them is a sinner, and he's cursed. And of course, the numbers. I'm not giving you a, a, a numerical accuracy there. We'll get to that in a minute. What has the hundred-year-old sinner done? In quotation marks. What is done is not accurate, is it? This is a misstatement intentionally so. What has the hundred-year-old sinner done to become accursed? Why has he or she done this? A hundred years. 
and we have this situation. Okay, we already need to back up and start over. This is the millennium. Jesus Christ, creator, God himself, the Lord God Almighty, Isaiah 9, 6, the ancient of days, Revelation 1, 13 through 16, is on his high mountain throne in Jerusalem. It's the only mountain in the entire world. And now no children die, but a man, woman, who is called a child, who is also called a sinner, will be accursed and will die at a hundred and be thought of as a child because a hundred is considered to be an infant in the millennium. Not mentally, not physically, but by length of life. An old man, however, does not die. If one lives beyond 100 years, there's no death for that person. They will live for the duration of the 1,000 years, and then they will enter the eternal state. So there you have two destinies. One dies at 100 and is cursed. The other one lives forever. 100 seems to be a period of time where there's a delineation or a demarcation. Not really. It's only for the sinner. The other one, the hundred, is of no interest or no circumstance or no uh, of, of no consequence. Sorry. So who are these that die at a hundred years? Why do they die? Do they know they're going to die? Everyone raised both hands. No one fell for it. It's easy to see who's on your phones now. That's really kind of cool. <laughs> I should have wore the tie, huh, there? I could have had the t- If somebody would inform me, I could have planned some kind of... It's degenerated completely today. It's your fault, Robin. <laughs> Who are these that die at a hundred years, and why are they dying, and do they know they're going to die? And the answer is yes, they know. They know that in a hundred years, they're going to die. Every one of them that dies knows they're going to die, and everyone that lives knows they're going to live. All those who go into the Messianic age, all of those who did go into the Messianic age, who got through this, this period of time right here, everybody that made it to the Messianic age, uh, they are natural men and natural women, and natural children. What do I mean by that? They're Jews and Gentiles. So these are the people that survived the tribulation, survived this intermediate uh, uh, time right here. I'll explain this in a minute, what that is. They make it into the, etern- or into the millennial kingdom, and they are still natural men, women, and children, and Jews and Gentiles. They're us. If we were there, we won't be there, because we're in the bride. But these are people that survived the tribulation. They're human beings. And they received the blessing of the 1335th day. That's what this is. This is the blessing of the 1335th day. They are the blessed. That occurs in that little intermediate period there. That's Daniel 12.12. And again, notice I said natural, meaning that they're still in their sin nature. They're not resurrected people. They still have a corrupted nature. But their body will not die. None of them will die. If you are of the blessed 
on the 1335th day. In other words, if you make it to the 1335th day, you go into the millennium from the tribulation and you don't die, but you still have a sin nature. And you will, you are eternally saved, but you have to be transformed. You don't have to be resurrected. However, you can make the case that resurrection is a kind of death. I'm sorry, uh, the rapture or the transformation process in that resurrection. It'll happen so quickly that you won't know that you ever had any other position. So, they're still natural, meaning that they still have their sin nature. So, they're still passing the sin nature to any of the children that now are born in the millennium. Therefore, since only the blessed of the 1335th day begin the thousand-year reign of Christ, only the saved believers, that's a redundancy, start in the kingdom. All we have are saved people who begin in the kingdom. But they will have children in that thousand-year period, and those children will have sin natures, and they will get to a hundred years, and that is a period of time where something happens for them. What happened to all the unbelievers in the tribulation? I should put the tribulation in here. I will. There it is. What happened to all the people who are unbelievers in the tribulation? Do you know? Do you know? Do you know? Did any unbelievers make it into the kingdom? No. Did any unbelievers get the blessing of the 1335th day? No. What happened to all the unbelievers who are alive at the time that Christ destroys the Antichrist, kills the army of the Antichrist, all the unbelievers that are alive. What do we call them in the Bible? Matthew 25, 31 through 46. We call them the goats. What happens to the goats? We have goats and sheep. All the sheep make it into the kingdom age. They get the blessing of 1335th day. They're still sheep. Still got mucus. Still got dingleberries. They're going to have little lambs. Those lambs are going to get to a hundred. Some of them don't want to be lambs. What percentage? That's another question to come. The unbelievers are all dead. Every single one of them. None, not one unbeliever enters into the messianic kingdom. Who killed the unbelievers? Matthew 25, 31 through 46. How many do you think there were that were killed? How many goats are slain? Who kills them? Obviously, the children of those who entered the kingdom of the believers will have free will and a sin nature. Now, how good a combination is that? What is God doing here? Why is he doing this? Why is this the seventh day? The eighth day, restoration of all things. But the seventh day has these characteristics. Satan is bound and in the abyss, in the pit. Jesus Christ is in Jerusalem on the only mountain, the highest mountain. Again, what's the point of this? All of this, and yet there will be those who choose death at the hundredth year. Choosing death is what they are intending to do. They are just waiting a hundred years to do it. And then they are killed. Who kills these people? 
And they choose death without the influence of who? Satan. The Flip Wilson argument is not here. You have to be my age to know who that is. There is no devil made me do it excuse here. There isn't one now. By the way. That's another story. Satan is different. He fell as an individual. That's significant, Jude 6. But why will anybody choose to die at a hundred years? And how many of them will do this? Of all other people that reach the hundredth year, and I say at the end of the millennium, the last hundred years of it, how many people will I have that are less than a hundred years old? Billions and billions of them. Because there's an exponential issue here. I have no physical death of the believers. How many children are they going to have? All of those children now are subject to this hundred year situation. How many of the people that, how many of the children that are born in the millennium choose to die? Well, how many of the ones that are born in the last hundred and hundred years choose to die. If you're born so that you're 99 years old right here, how many 99-year-olds do I have? And how many of them are going to die at 100? They're not going to reach 100. So what happens? And how many, again, is there? What percentage of the earth would choose to die at 100 if they could? And God will allow unbelievers 100 years of life. And if they willing, willfully, knowingly choose unbelief, they will die in their unbelief. If they choose belief, they will never die, John 11:26. So once again, the choice, the will, the living soul, the free will, if you will, huh? Rises to the forefront, Genesis 2.17, returns. It's a modified form. Isaiah 65, 17-25, and Genesis 2.16-17, the two trees. This is the same thing. Just slightly different. Do you see? The previous blends to the next. This is the next age. How many... Choose life or choose death. The description is plain. It's, I'm sorry, the decision is plain. It is obvious. It's without doubt. There's no plausible deniability. There's no plausible anyway. But there's no deniability. I didn't know God what I was doing. There isn't any of that here. That's not going to work anyway. Try it. Okay, don't. But somebody will. Everything is there. Christ is there. The mountain is there. The creation is there. The witnesses that you can talk to people that went through the tribulation. The the, the tribulation will be clear and certain. There is no death. And yet there will be those who choose death and they will know it's death that they are choosing. There is no question. Death is chosen. Why? Why do they choose death? What's the answer? You can do this. I'll wait for your answers. Never raise your hand. What, did, what was there? 
They hate God. Is absolutely true. Death is chosen because they desire death. They would rather have death than have life with God. Who thinks like this? How many? And then the death we have to evaluate in the context. Which death is this cursed death? Well, it's the second death. There's no question that that's the case. It's Revelation 2014 death. So you see, Isaiah 65.25 is giving us a, a slightly different situation, but yet it ends the same, because it ends with the serpent, doesn't it? I hope you all noticed that. The dust shall be the serpent's food. Here we are again. That's almost word for word, Genesis 3.14. What does it mean? The serpent's food is dust, eating dust. What is that? Well, if you heard me say this over the weeks, it's eating death. He is eating the blood, the death of men. Satan will be in the dust. It actually is an idiom that means he will lick the dust. He will eat the dust forever. That's what he will do. And this is a clue to Satan's progression, or if you prefer, his anatomy. The chain of steps, the chain of command that uh, Satan took. This is his sequence. And from his sequence, we should be able to discern his logic. Remember me asking you over and over again, what is Satan thinking? He is incredibly brilliant. We cannot imagine how incredible his intelligence is. He has thought this through. What did he, what is he thinking? He has to know how it ends. What is his goal? So we should be able to discern the logic of Satan, at least in part, conceding that we're just mere humans and we have a greatly diminished intellectual capacity compared to the serpent of old. To repeat, Satan is the father of lies. He's the very first one to lie. And he lied without any outside influences whatsoever. He is self-tempted. That's a big difference. He is the only one that way. Do you know that? There is no other person that is self-tempted, no other being but Satan. Satan fell without any outside influence. His fall was an eternal one. He had no influence whatsoever on him but himself. And consider the implications of that for a moment. Why Why this is necessary to, for this to occur in a sense. Obviously, Satan possessed the mental facility to do this. He could fall on his own. And he is bound in the bottomless pit. He cannot influence all of this. Who's causing these people to die? Do they have, do they have death preachers going around? Go ahead, die at a hundred. We're all going to die at a hundred if you don't. You're going to have to live with God. Who wants to live with God? We all hate God. What's going on? Satan had no, and he has no influence here, and he had no one influence him. That is not an insignificant characteristic of this conversation. Obviously, again, he possessed the mental facility to do what he did, to think what he thought. He had the freedom to rebel. How did he get the freedom to rebel? Where did it come from? But not just to do so as an individual, he had the freedom to mutiny, to begin an insurrection against his creator, to attack. Why was he allowed to do that? 
Satan launched a treacherous plan and spread anarchy through the heavenly estate, and he did it again on earth. Death, darkness, pain, suffering, eternal damnation. Why did Satan have the freedom to do this? Because you have done this. Why does he have the freedom, the ability to do this? To spread all of this. Why did he choose to do this? How smart is he? Always look at him as a genius that you cannot approach. Why did he choose to do it? Why the necessity to contaminate other, this infectious aspect, the contagion element? To phrase it simply, choosing to destroy yourself is one level. Why didn't he just destroy himself and go off in a corner? He did not choose to do that. He chose to destroy himself and then he chose to spread uh, that destruction. Why the need to kill as many other as possible. Is it vengeance against God? Is it hate against God? What did God do to justify being hated by Satan? What did God do to justify the murderous rampage of Satan? The answer is nothing. God did nothing. God created and God loves Satan. That's something to never forget. God loves Satan. So what's the motive, the logic here? Well, it's Isaiah 14, 12 through 15, and I'm probably out of time. Satan declared he would be like, be similar to be a type of the Most High God. Gosh, just got to do it, though, because we're going to take next week off. So for the sake of the Internet, because you have tortured me all sermon and caused me to lose my mind publicly, and you're doing it now. We will torture you in return. Isaiah 12, 14, 12 through 15. How you are fallen from heaven, O Lucifer, son of the morning. How you are cut down to the dust. You who weaken the nations, for you have said in your heart, I will ascend into heaven. I will exalt my throne above the stars of God. Who are the stars of God? I will also sit on the mount of the congregation on the farthest sides of the north. I will uh, ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will be like the Most High, yet you will be, you shall be brought down to Sheol to the lowest dust of the pit. Notice how I put dust in there. Lucifer said in his mind, I will ascend, I will exalt, I will also sit, also sit. I will ascend and I will be like the Most High. That's the five I wills of Lucifer, the shining one, the sun of the morning, the morning star. He would also sit on the mount of of the congregation. He will be above the stars of God, Job 38 through 7. So he wants to be above the stars of God, which implies what? He wasn't above the stars of God. We see this equality between him and Michael in some sense. So there was a group of angelic beings that he did not have authority over in some sense. But he wanted to be above them and he wanted to also sit. What's the implication there? I think also is absolutely the correct translation. What's the implication? Somebody else is sitting there. Who's sitting with him? 
above the clouds. It's plural. It's not singular. Uh, next week I'll get, or next week, the following week, June the 4th. Is this the Shekinah cloud, the pillar of cloud? The cloud of God is always above his mountain. Is Satan talking about the pillar of cloud? I believe that he is. I'll make that case. Satan desired to be a, be a being of great power, greater power than any other created being. And he would also sit above the, above the, clouds above the stars, and he would ultimately demonstrate this power that he had. How, how could he demonstrate the incredible power that he now has? What's his method of, of manifesting his power? And he does that by killing. So there you go. Instead of creator, he would be the destroyer. Instead of being the salvation, he would be the condemnation. He would look at, I cannot save and I cannot create, but I can destroy. And I can cause condemnation. Unable to create a living soul, Satan would seek to kill the living soul. And he would be like God. might seem convoluted to you, but it is extraordinarily powerful. By doing so, he believed that he would also sit on the mountain. Now, why did he think he would get to sit on the mountain as a killer? Instead of telling the truth, he would tell the lie. Instead of creating, he would kill. Instead of saving, he would condemn. And that would give him a seat on the throne or by the throne. He would be like God. What's the calculus here? That God would be forced into some kind of power-sharing agreement? What would force God into a power-sharing agreement with a murderer? In order to stop him from murdering, why couldn't God stop him from murdering? God's all-powerful. Why did Satan believe that God was going to allow him the freedom to kill? See how I answered that? Because I did. Did Satan think he could exploit God's loving kindness? Did Satan conclude that God was bound or trapped by his own goodness, his own mercy, his own love? You love me, and he knew that God, he knows that God loves him. And therefore, did Satan believe that he could coerce God into a detente, some kind of ceasefire? And obviously, this is Genesis 15, Matthew 4, Matthew 26, 36 through 46. This is a discussion on the solution to sin, the final solution, the ending of sin. Satan did not conceive, did not consider God's solution, that God would sacrifice himself. Satan never thought that God would drink the cup. Never thought he would do it. Because God has no sin. Sin is abhorrent to God. Right? And what does God do with sin? Drinks the cup. He who has no sin would take the sin and and whosoever will come to him will be saved. And he would do this and then he would bury Satan in dust. And Satan would eat dust and only dust forever. So that's the beginning of Sally's question. See you in two weeks.